Yeah, we're going to move on to the sermon. I enjoyed preparing it this week. Uh, last week, Daniel did a great job with filling in. I'm very thankful for that. And um, this week, I was excited to come back, get up here with any microphone, and be able to bring to you what I drew from Second Peter 1. So if you want to join me in that chapter, it's right after First Peter, just in case you didn't know. So, most people love stories, right? That's not new. The main way that information was passed down before writing from generation to generation was through story. Older people would talk to younger people around campfires or during travels, and they would tell them, this is what your grandfather did, this is what our ancestors did, this is how this happened. They would tell them fables and stories and tales. Stories connect with the deep themes in all of our lives, the themes that transcend culture, that transcend the passing of time, that transcend borders. They help us remember much better than simple facts listed out. They draw us into the lives of the characters. They show us a world filled with adventure which breaks us from the normal everyday that we live in or that we seem to experience. Fiction or nonfiction, there is a draw to seeing a hero prevail a hero struggle and come out on top. We see them face adversity. We see them fall. We see them gain wisdom, complete tasks. And in a high school literature class that I took, I learned about this thing called the hero's journey. It's a guy analyzed tons of stories, tons of thematic elements found in various hero epics, journey tales. And he came and said, "These are a, it's a basic circle of how these stories seem to work out. And then I also was studying Second Peter, and I noticed that some of the commentators and academics talked about how it's like a pilgrimage. It's like a story. There's certain themes that Peter talks about that seem to relate a story, a journey, or traveling. So I want to propose to you that this chapter is a pilgrimage story. Peter himself reminds his readers at some points of his own hero story. At points he draws us to join him in the same heroic type of journey. So I have two visuals for those of you that are visual learners. I believe that this chapter can be understood and like a story, it can be memorized maybe a little bit better and maybe the points can be more concrete in your minds if we look at it in story form. So the first is the hero's journey outline. Nope, I went too far. Oh, the other one's going to be Candyland. <laughs> but hero's journey outline, this is the outline that this guy made. There's some printed out there if you want to grab one on your way out. And it's just a visual representation of how a lot of stories go through. And then I looked at it and I realized a lot of common points between Second Peter 1 and how the hero journeys through his pilgrimage in normal stories. We'll get more into that, but the other is this game board, which is up on the projector of Candyland. I noticed some similarities, and we'll also be going over some things that help us to frame what Peter's talking about, but we have this Candyland board, 
and we have the hero's journey. And with them, if we try to look at Second Peter and track, all right, if this is a story outline, where do we fit in this story? Candyland may be a part of your childhood, or it may not be. But I hope that these two things would be great visuals for us to remember. Because before I started piecing this together, it seemed like Peter was all over talking about, you know, some, some things that had fantasy elements. He talks about leaving his departure. He talks about entering the kingdom of God. He talks about all these things. And then when I started to track, well, maybe he is drawing a little bit of a story. The things seem to, to come together. So I believe that it'll help us in understanding it. So if you would join me in first or in second Peter one, verses one to four. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world that is because of sinful desire. So, in the hero story, there's always a mentor. There's always somebody who instructs the young hero. And Peter is our mentor. Like all good mentors, he himself has taken a hero's journey. He reminds the readers of this by signifying two polar opposites just in his introduction. The first one is his name, Simon or Simeon, signifying who he was before Christ, signifying that brash man that we were introduced to six weeks ago. But then he also gives his name that was given to him by Christ, Peter, the rock of the church, the man that the church was going to be built upon as a foundation, the apostle. And then he gives two job descriptions. There's a servant, a bond slave. This would be seen as the lowest position in the Roman social standing. And then he also says the apostle as the highest position in the church, signifying to us that he has been through this journey. He has gone from one to the other. And he also, in transitioning from Simon to Peter, he still holds the humble and lowly position as a slave and the high and exalted position as an apostle. And he still considers himself both of those. So, I think he's a fantastic mentor for us as we begin this journey. He is writing to those and us who have an equal faith. Now this faith is brought to us through Christ, through the righteousness of Christ, through the knowledge of him. And as Peter has taken many steps on his journey, this is our first step into our hero's journey. And this would be receiving a gift, right? Every hero receives some kind of gift in their journey. For us, we've been given the gift of faith. Peter says, to those who have obtained a faith equal, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior. Now, the hero receives aid for their quest, something with great power or divine creation. For Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, he is given a lightsaber. For Frodo Baggins, he is given the one true ring. There are many stories where you can understand the hero is given something that will help them in their quest. For other heroes, it could be a sword, a shield, 
or something that without this, they would be helpless to continue their journey. For us, it is our faith. It is the faith given by God that enables us to continue on. Grace and peace flow through knowledge, through knowing about this faith. And the objects of it, which are God and Jesus Christ, are, they are the objects of our faith. And in this gift, we see also, as Peter says, that it's through Christ's divine power. The word here is ability, through his ability, through his divine power, that we are given all that we need for life and godliness. That's, that's a pretty large thing. And then he also continues on by saying something about knowledge. Now, knowledge is a word that Peter will hit on very commonly in this chapter and in this book. The main topic of his concern is false teachers during the time invading the church. And they would have been spreading lies and false knowledge. They would have been saying something about Christ that might not be true, or they would have been leading people astray. Instead of avoiding this thing of knowledge, this is the thing that the false teachers prized so much in their religious superiority. Peter takes back what it means to have true knowledge, what this means for the Christian. It's always the knowledge of and through Christ that emboldens and blesses the believer. After all, God is the one who called us, is he not? Christ is the one who has called us. He is the giver of the quest. They're the call to adventure that every hero goes through. And this is where God speaks to us, beckons us on. This calling is essential to our lives as it gives us purpose. It moves the plot of our lives along, continues pushing us forward towards something. In this gift as well, there are contained many precious promises to the believer. Promises to keep us, love us, guide us, reward us, refine us, supply us. But also there's future-oriented promises of living eternally with him in his kingdom. In that promise fulfillment, we will become partakers of the divine nature, not ourselves becoming God. I don't think any of us would believe that eventually in the end we all become gods, omnipotent, all-present, everywhere, all-powerful. I don't think that's what he means. But I think what he says here and also some other authors in the New Testament, they describe our sharing holiness with God, that in his kingdom where there is no sin, we share the divine ability to be holy, to be sinless. And with that, we are rid of of our sin nature, and we become as pure and holy as he is. Now, fleeing this corruption, as the verse says, escaping it is also one of our goals. This is us, the two adventurers beginning their trip in Candyland. Our quest puts us in a world of swamp and mud. God calls us to the purpose of leaving it behind. For our epic adventure, our hero's journey, we are to avoid these pitfalls, not being distracted by the sweetness of what the world has to offer. The gumdrops or the licorice entices us to come and stay. Find happiness with us. Live your long life here. And then, if we're tracking with Peter for this reason, he's going to tell us to apply all diligence to avoid these things. Join me in verse 5, please. For this very reason, make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So, what good journey, what good tale has the hero become idle in the middle of it? Lazy. What kind of excitement is there in contentment and apathy? What film that makes millions that everyone sees that you've heard of has the hero at the point where he is to just go and defeat the big monster or win the large prize? What film has him go and grab coffee and just wait while New York, New York is destroyed by a monster or a comet? We are to be diligent to supplement our faith. Now, adding to why I think this chapter uh, does well in story form, so I'm not just kind of pulling things out of midair and trying to make sense of something that isn't there, it's unique that he uses a word here when he says supplement. Now, this form of the Greek word has a root which would remind the readers of the person who supports a drama, the patron of the first century who would pay... Uh, actors and singers to sing choruses, to put on a play, to put on a drama. And he uses this word for supplement. So the person who paid for and employed these people made sure what happened in the action, what took part, what kind of play was it, what kind of song was it. Peter is saying that in the story of your life, be sure to add in this list, this list of things. But Jake, it sounds like we're doing a lot of work here. It sounds like I thought faith was supposed to be how the Christian did things and not works. How am I to now muster up from within myself additional things? What was that verse about having all necessary for life and godliness? Is that not true? Now I have to bring in additional virtues to be saved. I don't think that's where you should go with what I'm trying to teach, what I'm trying to show you. I imagine it like this. Instead of you mustering up from within yourselves or by your own bootstraps these additional things, brotherly love, goodness, kindness, compassion, all these things, I imagine that faith is more like a backpack. And if you can imagine with me what good pilgrim doesn't have a backpack, some kind of thing to carry along with them. And then for us, this is faith. And we as believers are to look into our faith, look into our gift of faith, this backpack from God, and draw from it godliness, goodness, excellence. And then not just goodness by itself, but also knowledge. And not just knowledge by itself, but also self-control. And not just self-control, but also perseverance, steadfastness. Not just steadfastness, but also godliness. And not just godliness, but also brotherly kindness. And not just brotherly kindness, but also love. And he stops there. He probably could keep going on, but he stops there. So what are these things in our backpack? What is this thing that our faith supplies us with? That we are to make sure that we, as partakers of the story of our lives, we are to make sure that our lives have these things written into them. What are they? Goodness is what it means to be a good person. To the essence of a person who is good. Now, even non-religious people can recognize goodness in a person. 
You don't necessarily have to be a Christian to hold the door open for somebody. But there's also knowledge that comes with this. It must come with goodness, but it's not the whole thing. We may know how to be good, and we may need to learn more about God as we grow in knowledge, but we need to learn what he says is good. We need to learn how he tells us to live. As we grow in that knowledge, we are also to increase our control of the passions within ourselves, our self-control. This is not to be stoic, not to rid ourselves of all passion. Love is a passion. When used right, it's a good thing. We are not to rid ourselves of these things, but we are learned to navigate we are to learn to navigate our gut reaction. For some of us that's very hard. For me, that's very hard. When we first want to react to something, we are to control those passions. <clears throat> because we have knowledge. Knowledge of what God wants us to do. We are to take this self control and continually operate under it. Not just say, Man, I'm I'm glad this week I did good. Now I can not worry about self-control. We are to have steadfastness, endurance, beyond what a cliff bar or a trail mix can give to us. Peter knows that it takes stamina to control your passions over time. A life of endurance will be seen because as you continue to endure, godliness will come from you. As you diligently pursue this godliness. Now, for Peter, this word he uses is one of the many words in this book that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. They're very unique words, almost pagan words, words that philosophers and people in Rome or people in Greece would have used, not necessarily Christian words. And the word he uses here is that, godliness. It's, it's not anywhere else in the New Testament that I believe. And this meant to those that would be reading it, that somebody has an overall piety about them, like an actual, visible sense that this person is holy. They abstain from sin. They control themselves. The philosophers and the Stoics and the people in that time, they understood what self-control was. Not everybody just wanted to rid themselves of self-control. They understood what piety towards the gods meant. They understood what sacrifice to control your passions meant. And here Peter tells the church and us as on our journey that we also need to pursue this type of godliness, something that can be seen. <clears throat> then from this comes brotherly love as well. And then this is the first striking point that stands out, that we are not on this journey alone. While most movies have one hero supported by a mentor and a friend and another friend, perhaps a small team, that is not how we are to be. We as a church are to love one another, understanding that we're each on this journey. We're each pursuing this righteousness. We are to help each other out, care for each other, much like this image. I don't think the little boy is pulling the little girl, I, I like to believe that they're helping each other out. So, Peter doesn't, again, just stop at brotherly love, but he continues to broaden what we are to draw from our faith, to what we are to supply our faith with, and that is a general love. Love for everyone. Love for those around us who aren't Christian. Love for those who are. 
<clears throat> so he doesn't want to be narrow, and he caps off this list. And it's, in a sense, love is on the bottom of the bag, and if you have adventured, like sometimes I have, where I have a bag and I have a lot of things I need, I usually find exactly what I need at the very bottom. And I have to work through everything else as I get to it, and oh, there it is. Somehow it found its way to the bottom. I believe that's how Peter intends to cap off this list. As we work through these things and continue supplying our faith with them. But the hero of the story shouldn't get everything sorry, but the hero of the story shouldn't get everything he needs to perform. He or she needs to perform their task and then stop. It doesn't make sense to have everything that your faith entails and then just live life complacent and idle. That would make a hero foolish and useless. They forget the gift, the backpack of faith. They forget their purpose, the call of God. They forget their goals, the eternal kingdom, and escaping corruption. Join with me in verses 8 to 9, please. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, losing sight of our journey and our purpose as a Christian causes us to become blind, in a way. I wouldn't say that Peter means absolutely blind, like those who are non-believers, but by adding nearsighted to the definition, I think he means two things. It's possible... A lot of people go one or the other way, so I want to present to you two options. One of them is that those who are myopic or nearsighted can only see within a few feet or a few yards. If some of you are like this, you'll understand exactly what I mean. I had to ask somebody who is nearsighted how this changes their life because I don't know. And he replied, you can only see a little bit in front of you. So what Peter may be alluding to here is that Christians... Some of them who forget their journey, forget their purpose, begin to become enamored with the world, with the things of this world that they see in front of them. And in regards to the future, in regards to farther on in their life, they become focused solely on the now and get stuck on a gumdrop or perhaps become too comfortable in peanut brittle houses. There we go. They become stuck, focusing on what's here in the world. Maybe he could go further to explain that those who are short-sighted never move beyond being simply good Christians and knowing a lot about God. A nearsighted person is able to read fine, but anything beyond that reading begins to be an issue when it comes to love and perseverance, helping others out acting out the Christian life, maybe those who are short-sighted begin to only just have the knowledge and not the action. Or he could be meaning, the second option, using an older, less common definition of this word. It means to shut one's eyes. Kind of like that. Intentionally shutting your eyes. The, purpose, the person purposefully closes their eyes to the tasks that they have before them to this Christian journey. 
it's kind of like the mentality that the Christian pilgrimage is similar to the monsters in your closet, where if you just close your eyes tight enough, eventually they'll sort themselves out and go away. Doubtless Peter will have encountered this kind of person in his travels, in his teaching, in the churches. And he would have seen what this does to a person's faith in the long run. His advice goes against this, and he continually, and yet more so, urges us to push forward in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, instead of becoming nearsighted, whether you shut your eyes intentionally or whether you only focus on knowing more about Christ and not doing more for Christ, continue on. Because the call awaits. The adventure beckons you. One of the stages of the hero's journey is the refusal of the call. Heroes will come up with various reasons for why they aren't fit to proceed. In The Lion King, Simba desires to not go back to Pride Rock. Moses tells God that he can't speak eloquently enough. Peter denies to a young girl that he is not a disciple of Christ. But he wants his readers to press on, to learn from these mistakes, to not refuse the call of God on all our lives. A weary pilgrim always looks to the comfort that the journey's end provides. And for us, this is the eternal kingdom of God. Oh, we might have to stop at the slides. I'm sorry. Is it up there? Right. The eternal kingdom of God. This is the end of Candyland. This is the end of our journey as well, to which it will be richly supplied by Christ. We have that to look forward to. Uh, No sin, no sorrow, no exhaustion, no pain, no worry. And this is the goal set before us. It is Christ who has abundantly supplied this to us. And in a weird coincidence of Candyland and this sermon and the hero's journey, uh, I found that King Candy here is actually the only character on the whole board that looks at the people playing. Everybody else is looking at the ground, looking at what they have in their hands, looking forward. He's the only person that is looking at the player. And in a weird way, I I can see how this points to God and points to Christ. As you, as a pilgrim, weary traveler, in our journey, we have him as our hope. We have our eyes set on him, and he watches over us and cares for us as a good shepherd. Now, like a shepherd guarding, guiding sheep into the resting place, Peter also desires to lead the church and guide it as well, based off of what Christ asked him to do. Join with me in verse 12, please. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So, the thing which he is alluding to here, which he's talking about, 
is recorded for us in John 21, 18-19. Truly, truly, I say to you that, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In Peter's old age of writing this letter, around the middle 60s AD, he would have been around 60 to 70 years old. Well, into the, well into the old age that Christ said he would die. Tradition has it that he wrote this very epistle, this letter, from a prison in Rome while awaiting this sentence. Who better to, to pen a letter to encourage believers through the difficult journey than the one who is serving time himself, than the one who is on the journey, than the one who's been through the journey, than Simon Peter, the bond slave and apostle. So he then continues on to describe what makes his words so authoritative, what makes the account of the apostles and the prophets so believable. In verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for whom he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, and with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The words that he wrote and the things that he told them of Christ were not made up. We've spent the past two months studying the first letter, and we're going to continue working through the second letter. And this is a great point for us to recognize and realize that he was a man who experienced these things with Christ, who was there with Christ. They came from someone who heard the very words of God speak about the importance of Christ. This is different from the fables and the Greek religious system that everyone around Peter would have believed in. Who recorded the beginnings of Zeus, the stories of these famous gods that we know about from Greek mythology? Who wrote them down? Who was there to say that's how it happened? There's two main sources that we get a lot of that information from, Homer and Hesiod, and even those two, disagree on various points, whether or not this person was the father of this person, how this person got into an argument with this person and created this island, all these various things about what they did. What about the philosophers of Peter's day who tried to make the best guesses that they could about the world around them, about its origins, about what the beginning of man was, about all these things, making up ideas and philosophies? Not Peter. He saw, he heard, and he knew that God was present when the prophecies of Christ were fulfilled by the word of God. Therefore, he can look to the scriptures, which he read, and he can see them as a lamp 
as a light in a very dismal, dark, and dry world around him, to guide and lead the pilgrim through the dim of the night that is this current world. What good pilgrim doesn't have a flashlight or some kind of light to guide them? Usually in the scene where they're walking through a dark area, and they need that light. The Word of God is for us that lamp. So we have these writings of the apostles and the prophets, knowing that they have been made more sure, being proved to Peter from his own experience, a test of whether a prophet is a good prophet or a false prophet, always came about if what they prophesied would happen, did happen. In fact, if what they prophesied that would happen and didn't happen, that was bad news for them because that would mean that they were a false prophet. But here, Peter knows that the word of God and the writing of the prophets is a sure lamp for the Christian. Every hero needs light in the dark journey, and until we witness the return of Christ when he comes like the day dawning and the morning star shining in our hearts on the horizon, the sun approaching. Matthew 17 records this. I think this is where Peter gets this verse from and these words about the morning star shining, the day dawning in your hearts. Matthew 17 says about the transfiguration, which Peter alludes to here, hearing God speak. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, or as Mark speaks in the Gospel of Mark of this transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Verses 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here at the end of this chapter, we move on to probably the primary verse for figuring out how the, gospel, how the Bible is the inspired word of God for figuring out how we get the Bible and know that it is his word. Most people have this verse memorized or have at least read it before. All I need to say first is that I don't believe that Peter is talking about the reader's interpretation of a specific verse or a prophet's writing. I don't think he's saying that every interpretation that each of us comes up with is the right interpretation. If that were the case, all the various views of the book of Genesis would all have to be true. And we know that that's impossible because some of them mean that the other ones can't be true. So I don't think he's saying that however you want to interpret it is, is how God wants you to interpret it. I think that's over-spiritualizing what God intended the Bible to say. I think that there's, there's one interpretation. There's one understanding. There's multiple applications that we can draw from a scripture passage, but there's one true interpretation of what it means. It doesn't mean something different for me or for you, or this means this to me, but it doesn't mean it to you. It could be applied to me in a specific way, and things can be applied to you in specific ways, but I think they all need to mean the same thing. So with that, I think he's talking about the Word of God. 
coming from God and the prophets. The speaking and writing that they did, that this could be only from God. Now, it wasn't a matter of their unraveling. The word here for interpretation means to unravel, to understand. It's not a matter of them simply trying to figure out, guessing, maybe this is what God's trying to tell me, maybe it's not. Oh well, I'll write it down anyways. It's kind of like Peter uses this word to explain, he uses a word picture. We know he's a fisherman from his experience, so we know that he has a working familiarity with boats, correct? And assume that we know he knows how to use a sail. And the word he uses here for carried, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is the same word as a boat being carried by the wind. A boat on the ocean being carried by the wind. And I think what he's trying to explain is that it's like the prophets and apostles, the men of God who spoke from God. It's like they raised their sails and they allowed the wind of God to direct them, guide them, and put them where they needed to be to speak and write his words. And because of this, we can know that God's word is reliable and sure, accurate. It is a light for our path as we journey through this life. Taking our backpack of faith, which contains all that we need for this life and godliness. Diligently moving towards the upward call of Christ to follow him and find the eternal kingdom as we leave the corruption in this world. So my hope for you this week and today is that you would see the truth presented here. Whether or not the story or Candyland or other ideas threw you off, I hope that's not the case. But I hope that you would be reminded through this story, through your journey, through your life, that God is guiding you, that God is using his word as a lamp that you can trust in to guide your feet in a dark and dreary world as we approach his eternal kingdom. And I hope that you would understand that he's carrying you along and he is guiding and he has his eyes on us, seeking the very best for us, sending us mentors like Peter, but also those in this church who've been through things, who have taken those turns, who've gotten stuck on those same gumdrops, and they can help us. They can help us to see where our faults are. They can help us to see how to improve how to expand our faith, how to grow as a Christian. And then I long for the day that we can end this journey, that we can find this eternal kingdom that he has promised to us, that he has supplied richly for us. And yet we still journey now, and we still have steps to take this week, next week, this month. We still have this path to continue on. And as a, a form of nourishment, we're going to approach the table, the body and the blood of Christ that he sacrificed for us to allow us by his righteousness. The beginning of this chapter, Peter hits on it. This gift of faith that we have is through his righteousness, by taking our sins, by taking our dark and dreary sins, and instead giving us his righteousness that now allows us to approach his kingdom. So I'm going to pray for communion, and then we're going to partake in it together.